Hola, bienvenido. I don't speak Spanish. Is it bienvenido? No, it's something else. It's something else. Welcome to Sustain, everyone. This is very exciting. I'm very excited to have you all. Sustain is, of course, the podcast where we talk about open source. Where do we come from? Where do we go? Why do I always quote a French painter at the beginning of these episodes? I don't know. I don't need coffee today, but I have some more here. So if I get speedier throughout the podcast, hosts slow me down. Of course, I'm Richard Littauer, the main host for this Sustain podcast. We also have Amanda Cassari or Cassari on today. Very excited. Hello, Amanda. How are you? Hello, Richard. I'm doing okay today. I'm very happy to be here with you all. Excellent. Lots of love to you and everyone at Google, of course. Leslie Hawthorne is also joining us today. Leslie V. Gates. Mir geht's good, aber mein Deutsch ist schlecht. So, vielleicht we're alles reden auf English, ja? Ja, ja, perfect. Let's us in English good. talking. Great. So now you know who the voices are. And of course, you're not here to listen to us. We don't really matter. Who does matter? Well, Yadira Sanchez Benitez, Yadira, I hope I pronounced that correctly, is joining us today. Now, she has been on this podcast before. If you are an astute listener, you will have listened to the Foss Backstage podcast from last year. And there's going to be more next year. And she came on for a 10-minute, 15-minute podcast while she was there. And we thought that her subject matter was so interesting that it really needed a full hour to get into it. So welcome back, Yadira. It's great to have you here. How are you doing today? Hello. Thank you so much for having me again. I'm doing good right now. Yes. Thank you. Good. That beats the alternative. All right. So Yadira is a lecturer in data science at Southampton, England. She's a creative technologist. She examines the role technology plays in our everyday lives and ecosystems, engaging and actively dismantling the tech violent pipelines, reinforcing hegemonic structures is one of the things she is very good at and reimagining and co-creating spaces where technologies and art are pluriversal and liberatory. These are all words we don't often have on this podcast, which is kind of a shame. Most of the time when we talk about sustaining open source, we talk about things like OSPOs or licenses or contributing guides. Yadira focuses on the broader scheme of things. Yadira, I want to know first, how do you get paid for that? What role is that? But that's awesome. And B, how did that start? How did you get into that position? Thank you. So when I say like creative technologies, I think it involves like all things that I like doing. So I love doing technology in general, like mostly like coding, but I moved also into doing a little bit of electronics as well. And I like combining that with a creative perspective. So I've never really like considered myself like an artist growing up, but I think there's a lot of like artistry also in doing things that require creativity from a perspective that it's your own. So I think I combine a lot of things like the work I do in academia, but also the activism that I do with colleagues in this like spheres of moving away from hegemonic kind of thinking when it comes to creating technology, for example, and moving more towards how can we create technology in a community setting? And by community, I don't mean like a large community because everyone belongs to a community and so on, but more like our backgrounds, where we come from and that sort of community that unites us. Now, how do we get paid for this? So Definitely like working for academia has sort of allowed me to have these resources to do other stuff that I like doing. So if I would have to choose not working for academia, I'll probably do that. But people need to eat and we need the money and so on. 
And also like I apply for like fellowships, for example. So I have a fellowship right now with the Software Sustainability Institute here in the UK. It's based at Edinburgh University. They're doing an amazing job in providing resources, monetary, but also like the skills to people from many different backgrounds that like to do open source, but not only open source, any kind of stuff that will help their life of software to be sustainable in the long time. So yeah, I think fellowships have been helping, but also sometimes just working with other colleagues that have similar interests and combining the resources that we have into creating projects. So yeah, that's how kind of like I get going with stuff. Thank you so much. That is amazing. A quick shout out to Neil at the Software Sustainability Institute. I don't know how I haven't had him on the podcast. I think I keep saying I should email him, but then I just forget. That's awesome. They do great work. If you're in the UK, do check out the SSI. They're super, super cool. And I hear you on, well, I do this because I need to get paid, but really I'm just trying to make this work as much as I can. And I love that sense of vision. Now you talk about hegemonic structures and how we build code. I can think of a few examples. For instance, most people who do open source do it using GitHub, although there is an entire ecosystem out there that doesn't use GitHub. And that's a good example of one major player taking up how we do things. Most people who do open source depend upon the OSI's opinions for their licenses, right? It's not the only way to think of open source, but it's certainly one way to philosophically have a hegemonic control of the space. Now, those are just two things that I sort of whipped up at the top of my head in answer to like, what is hegemonic control of open source production or software production? You probably have much better examples that are deeper than that. Can you tell me more about what you mean? Yeah, sure. So I've also been thinking a lot about this because so I have friends that work more into the area of community networks. So providing the infrastructure, for example, for communities to connect to the internet and so on. And we were talking about what open source actually means in this kind of like aspects of community work. Because what happens a lot is if providing, for example, community access to alternative infrastructure, there is this point where you really want to involve the community in being involved in the whole process, but also the understanding of what that process entails. And the documentation that goes into that When I think, for example, here from a UK perspective, I work with the Software Sustainability Institute, we rely a lot in documentation and platforms like GitHub to propagate the work that we do. But that doesn't quite work when you work with communities that may not have access to fast internet or a lot of data to work with these kind of platforms and also the skill set that might require into understanding how these platforms work. So how do we move away from talking about open source, from hegemonic structures is also starting to create different kind of structures that make more sense to communities. So how does documentation or a storage of code look like if it's from a community perspective in a way that they can also understand this? And actually, it's really funny because... So the Software Sustainability Institute is helping me a lot right now in like doing this kind of like collection of data from like sensor networks with the community. And I'm trying also to figure out as I go, how does this look like? Because I mean, I grew up in my rural community and our internet is in Obama, it's terrible. So you can't really rely into going to GitHub to maintain stuff, for example, right? And I'm sort of like trying to figure out with my colleagues, how do we store the data in a way that makes sense? So I think that's a process that we are still trying to figure out. I think we will figure out at some point, hopefully like in the next year. 
on how is it going to look like. I mean, I know that there's a lot of documentation from a community perspective that's happening when it comes to internet community infrastructures. And I know that there's a lot of colleagues in South America that are doing this. Alter Mundi, I can give you the links later. They're doing amazing work. And I think they have great examples on how to do this. This open source from a different perspective, I assume. Can you tell me a bit more about Ultramundi? I know there's some work going on with digital democracy in South America, where they, for instance, have indigenous Guajani workers working with open source networks offline to help them track illegal logging, which is super cool. What does Ultramundi do? I'm going to be honest with you. I haven't really worked with them ever, uh, although I wish I could. I know that they do provide their skill sets and the infrastructure setting for communities. So they provide the education, but also the resources for these communities to have the infrastructure. And that's already a lot of work. So in terms of doing that kind of community work, it's very few, I guess, in Latin America that can do that right now. And I know there's some in Mexico as well, where they're working with mostly indigenous communities in doing this. Now, Alter Mundi, I mean, it's also like context. I think they have been a huge reference for the whole of Latin America in how to do this kind of work. So one of the things that I have seen throughout my career working, at least in the free and open source software world, is that there is a ton of incredible work happening amongst developers and communities across Central and South America. And due to language barriers or a a lack of looking, a lot of us are not particularly well informed about what those things look like. Is there a, first of all, are there any other cool projects you'd like to comment on? And is there a way for those of us who would like to learn more to get better engaged what's coming out of these communities? Yeah, thank you. I think that happens also a lot within Latin America itself. That sometimes you can be aware of what our colleagues are doing down south, for example. Even though there's a language barrier, there might be like a communication barrier. But I know that there's a lot of accompanying each other between like Mexico, Central America and South America when it comes to this kind of like activist projects. There is some communities that come to mind. In fact, many, many, yeah, many communities. I can pass the list down later. But there's also the issue of native languages. So something that I've been involved with in the last year is how do we also get together with people whose first language is not Spanish? So that's also the idea of moving beyond or from hegemonic structures is the creation of technologies that do not include is a bad word, but that center native peoples in the co-creation of these technologies. And I've been working with a friend who does a lot of work in, in this area. And so how does this look like too? Because a lot of Mexicans don't know, for example, that there's a lot of work being done in native communities towards their own technologies, for example. So I think it's a very normal process that, you know, if you live in a completely geographical area or a different reality, it's really easy to separate like yourself from what's going on in the other side or even in front of you, but you're just not aware. Now for this was, I actually, I was very lucky to get a fellowship with the Processing Foundation in the US where we started working how co-creative technology, which is coming together with the community and creating technology, but from a creative perspective, looks like. I am working with my friend to do this also. 
in their native language. So because what happens a lot and I was getting a little bit frustrated too is that there is a lot of work happening with native peoples in Mexico on the digital sphere, for example. But I was more like intrigued by centering, for instance, kids and young people in actually mm-hmm. creating this technology themselves rather than coming from a perspective of, I am here in academia, I know how to do stuff, let me do it for you. For me, that was kind of like, I wasn't interested so much into bringing something, but more of, I cannot pass on the knowledge so that someone else, if they want to, can create their own stuff without like forcing anything upon them. And yeah, that has been really interesting. And I think I've also, we've also found that there's a separation in Mexico from not knowing that a lot of these things are happening within the same country. Yeah. That's awesome. Thank you. So I got to learn a little bit more about you in preparation for this podcast. And I look through your portfolio and there are some truly fantastic creations there that looked like they came about when you were in Berlin, including some wearables and just really cool electronic art. Will I see you at a future Chaos Communications Congress conference near me to show these off? Or can you tell us more about that creative work? Yeah, I'd love to go. I actually didn't know this, but it sounds really intriguing and I'd love to do it. So about this time last year, I got an invitation to be part of an artist residency in Berlin. So it was for two weeks. And the idea of this residency was to come together and talk about interventions that have to do with what's happening in the world right now. So more specifically, like regimes and dictatorships and things like that. So it was about how can we communicate in different ways so that they cannot intercept how we communicate? Or is there just creative kind of thinking on how we can do communication differently? And it was so interesting because there were people from all over the world and everyone had so many great ideas on how to like, for instance, use technology to communicate with each other in a way that regimes don't intercept our communications. There was a lot of back and forth because there was at some point a lot of centering into computer communication, which as we know, I think they are very sensitive to regimes capturing this kind of communication infrastructure. So the idea was also to create different things that go beyond like digital kind of communication, for example. One of the things that I'm very passionate about is like climate change, for example. And it seems to be also an issue that a lot of regimes, I mean, purposely perpetuate the problem even further. And we're seeing that, for instance, in South America, a lot of indigenous peoples have been violated because of the work that they do to protect the earth and the Amazons. And in Mexico as well. So all of Latin America, it's pretty bad right now when it comes to protecting the land. And I was thinking, how can I create something that speaks to that, but also to the community and involves the community in the process of how we connect to the land as well through technology and so on. And so I've always had this connection, I guess, to the Milpa system, which is basically a very ancestral agricultural system in Mesoamerica, which is like today Mexico and Central America mostly, where, you know, the main kind of like foods that our ancestors would have and that still continues until this day. And a lot of people in my community rely on agriculture to feed their families and so on. 
So I come from a community that relies on agriculture a lot and meal pie is a huge thing for that and for our food every day. And so, okay, I don't want to, I was thinking first, if I create something that's going to be functional, as in like something that a lot of people can use, it's probably going to take really long. So you need more than two weeks to come up with something. Second, to create something functional, it requires that you're probably going to leave a lot of the things you want to include in that because functionality, a lot of the times involves just productivity, something that works. It doesn't matter how or what. And I didn't want that because we were working in a more like a creative environment. So I decided that I was going to create this piece where it would be the meal pad system connected to some cables and soil moisture sensor. And then this soil moisture sensor would be connected to a Raspberry Pi, which then would be connected to my computer. And based on the soil moisture, depending on how people, how much they water, for instance, the piece of soil that was connected to the meal pan, it would trigger web page on the computer. And based on these levels, it would take you to a page on environmental activism across Latin America. So it was, how can I create something that I should know about with something else? And I didn't think it was going to work, but then we had like people who have been doing art in this regard. And also like some super experienced coders and stuff. And turns out that two weeks was enough to create that. And it worked. And I was really happy. I was like, how can I then use this in the future? Bring it back to my community and show it to the kids so that they also, they're passing the skill set to the kids in a form that is creative and playful, but also speaks to the things that talk to our community, for example. And that's what we're trying to do when I go back home. Turns out that bringing a lot of mini computers and stuff like that, it's a work in itself. <laughs> that that so, is so fantastic. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. Yeah. So I think the plan is to bring this material now next time I'm home and reproduce this. You know, that is so cool. That is really awesome. That sounds a lot like the Three Sisters, which is another agricultural thing that happens here in Vermont, where the Algonquins, right, originally use corn, and then the beans would grow up the corn, and then you have squash nearby. And it's just so cool. It's awesome to see that. And it answers my question of like, what does community indigenous code even look like? What are you going to do with an Amazon web server if you're like working with corn? And it's actually, well, you could do this sort of stuff. So thank you for helping to answer. Like, what would you build if you could build it? That is the coolest. Also, for people who don't know, CCC is the Chaos Communication Conference that happens every year in Berlin. Think of it as Burning Man for tech people in Germany. It's really cool. So sweet. Yeah, I actually, if it's okay, I kind of wanted to take what you were saying and go a little bit further into this idea that you've brought forward. And I'm not sure if you've mentioned it so far, if it was just in the document about the power of marginal thinking when it comes to tech co-creation and access. Because, and especially from folks from a data background who is used to looking at how statistics can be used to erase people who live at the margins or who are considered in the margins been thinking a lot lately about how aspects of nonviolent communication is actually like assuming good intent, consensus building is actually being weaponized to erase marginal thinking and voices from conversations because a lot of these conversations are designed to centralize decision making, even when those decisions ultimately are harmful to any groups, any marginal groups or underrepresented groups. And I'm just curious, Yadira, if this has been your experience as well, especially working in statistical processes or data-centered processes that are taken over by larger groups. And if you have any thoughts on how we as practitioners can work together to prevent that kind of weaponization. 
Thank you. Yeah, actually, that's so funny because I had a lecture this last Monday and it was on basic statistics. I was introducing the basic statistics to data science students. And I actually, I center a lot into indigenous data governance, for example. And we talked a lot about how, yeah, this whole shabam of how statistics have been used by governments to erase communities that they want to oppress and control and so on. And how important it was to move the conversation towards passing or not passing, actually, giving back the control and the management to people who have been native to the land. And it was really interesting, actually, because it's part of a lot of conversations also into how that came from colonization and so on. And I was just speaking a lot from like a Latin American perspective from North America, which I'm more like attuned to. And then someone was like, yeah, that's so interesting. I had never considered that because that also happens here in the UK with like Welsh people and Scottish people. English has been the central language now and everything that they see is in English. They were also thinking how Welsh communities have been erased through the English government, you know, erasure tactics. And I loved that I was able to bring this indigenous data governance issue because then they start thinking how it's everywhere, right? Everyone is doing it. Everyone who wants to be in control, every government who wants to be in control or empower and oppress, it's doing the same tactics, literally. And that's just around the corner from us. Like, it's not something that is far away from here. It's literally here. And I was, that was fascinating because I had never considered that either, even though I knew that Welsh people had been erased, right? <laughs> I'm laughing off screen because I lived in Edinburgh and my master's thesis was on Gaelic, which is also the same thing, right? Scots Gaelic has also been erased from the Highlands, sometimes forcibly, often with violence, using the exact same tools. Which also gets them perpetuated in tech by things like deciding which languages to offer in an application, which is trying to teach people foreign languages. So I had a very intense discussion with my 11-year-old who insisted to me that she was learning Irish. And I said, Irish is not a language. And we went to Wikipedia to go into yeah, this. It's, no, 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 no. So we'll go first here into expressing my own ignorance, right? I am wrong. I am wrong many different times, but it was lovely because then we started going into the difference between you are in an, a language learning app to be able to learn different kinds of languages. But you are being told, first of all, the name of the language is now being translated into English to what you are trying to learn. It's not expressing dialect. It's not, it's assigning each of those to a country. So it's telling you that you're learning the language of a country, but it's not really the language of a country, but these are all these are all decisions made by technologists, which then gets translated into knowledge into every single year. And so it was one, like, yes, Richard, good learning lesson for me. I love that I don't know everything. I love diving in and finding out more. But then it was the starting to translate to my 11-year-old. I was like, here's all the problems I have with this in addition to my own ignorance. And she just was like, okay, I'm just right, mom. So thanks, because the app says I'm right. I was like, well, there's nuance here. But it's funny to me because I do think those choices matter, right? Because then erasure does happen. And at the same time, as engineers and people who are making decisions, you're also trying to make trade-offs and features and like how to explain to people the decisions that are being made along the way. And so I think that like, again, this is where centralization and designing for like for few starts having a cost. But yes, you can definitely pick up on my ignorance. I love that because I like learning more. <laughs> 
I will say my argument was that it was Gaelic or Celtic and not Irish. So my argument was about the specific naming of the it's Irish. And I was like, it's Maddie, that's Gaelic. And she was like, it's not Gaelic. I was like, okay, okay. A lot to go into there. It is interesting earlier in the podcast, you did, you said indigenous people. And I'm like, well, the indigenous are everywhere. So <laughs> they're always pushed to the margins. I have an awkward question, which is I just have to ask because I just don't know the answer, which is I was born in the U.S., white male. My ancestors are descended from the people in the Mayflower who committed acts of genocide against the indigenous here. But I don't have an indigenous place. You could say Britain, you could say Germany, you could say Jewish, which is, I guess, Israel. It's really hard. Like, what do we do with people like me who are in tech, who don't have roots to indigenous areas? How can I not only be an ally, but center the parts of myself that are useful as opposed to just saying, I'm a bad person and I need to shut up around everyone else all the time. What do we do in tech to help heal those wounds and accept that maybe I'm as legitimate a person as anyone else, but I have some patterns that are dangerous and violent? How do we work with that? Actually, I think it was this morning I was listening to this talk by, I think we spoke about this activist last time. Yes, Nadia Aguilar. And they were given a talk, I think it was in the U.S. or Canada, on indigenous futures. And they went a lot into detail where like this wording also comes from. And it was fascinating because to speak of indigenous is just also made up word that someone invented at some point to try and control the conversation of where people come from or where do they belong as well. And of course, there is the issue of being native. And I think we all here and everybody or most people, I like to think, are aware of the historical, you know, implications of colonialism. We don't need to get into that. So there has been a lot of erasure from that side on native peoples. And it's really interesting also because like Yasnaya, I would recommend to listen to like what she has to say. Like the way she speaks about the issue is amazing. And she advocates also a lot about for like the coming like together against like systemic structures. So at the end of the day, we're also all like part of a system that we did not ourselves create and we're in this situation. And I think being aware in the privileges we hold, for example, when we're in certain places, I mean, it always has to do with space and time. Here in the UK, I definitely do not hold the same privileges that I hold like if I go back home when I am with other communities, for example. So being aware of that, I think is also really important because it allows us to speak up in certain situations or like not speak sometimes. Sometimes it's not our turn to say things, right? Or to like give our opinions, but sometimes it really is. And like, what does solidarity also mean in that way? How can I act in solidarity with people as well when I'm in a position of power or privilege? And I think a lot also about how being in academia, it's like really not the way towards like justice or anything or things that I believe. But I also think that, okay, I'm in this place now, so I might as well utilize it to speak up about the things that matter to me and the things that matter out there. Because we like to think that a lot of people probably are aware of things, but sometimes it's not the case. And speaking about these things, it really creates, I think, like a network of more awareness and then like active doing into how we can do stuff that benefits the people has, that have been, you know, marginalized. 
That's a great answer. Thank you. I'm thinking, I asked it from a personal perspective, but it's not about me. It's about tech people, right? How do we solve this problem of tech being part of this system, but also being a crappy part of the system most of the time, to put it lightly. And so obviously, awareness is a great response and building codes of conduct, building contributing guides, shutting up if you're one of the 10 people in a room and nine of you are male. All sorts of things like that are really, really useful. The majority of open source is done by people who have the privilege to spend time on projects without getting paid for it. The majority of open source is not done by people who don't have incomes. And this is a major issue. It's why it's very hard for people in Africa, in the developing world, to get into open source, in the global south, to get into open source. Do you have any suggestions or thoughts on how to easily, that is a horrible word, but I'm going to use it, easily help decolonialize your open source projects or the thinking of the people you're working with in these projects to make it easier for people who don't have the privilege besides being aware and being quiet sometimes? Do you have any other tangible things that we can help with that we could do? Or is that just a misguided question? So open source, the idea of it, it just makes sense, like open source, like to have doors open and to have knowledge open. But it's really like difficult to go full on with it just because of the structures that we still live in. So to say, everyone, let's do open source. And how can we open the doors to people in Africa or Asia or Latin America or anywhere, anywhere in the world that might not have the opportunity to do this? I think that take us to like down a rabbit hole of many possibilities. But at the end of the day, I think it's also very important to ask a question, open source for whom and for what, right? Because I love open source and I love going finding knowledge that otherwise I wouldn't have on that if open source didn't exist. But I also have the skill set to go find that and for what I'm using it to. I think this also goes back to like data governance, for example. So who are the people agreeing to have an open source? And when I was giving this lecture, I put this video by indigenous researchers and activists, and they were talking about the issue of open source as well, that it makes sense to do it, but it also depends where the ideal is coming from and towards what. Yeah, so I think everything is interconnected at the end of the day. So, yeah. <laughs> I will say, I think there's some, like this is based on talks I've seen as well, Yadira, on there's some very intentional decisions that folks in open source with power and privilege make, which may unintentionally shut out those who wish to get involved or contribute. I saw a lovely talk at the Ada Developers Academy conference in 2019 that was talking about putting together and having an open source maintainer and I can't remember the specific country in Latin America, but they discovered that getting this person to be a maintainer, and they were paid, a paid maintainer, the turnaround time on getting work back was actually increased exponentially because of the way that the American maintainers at a company were doing releases and the size of the release packages that they were making. So the person who was working was not able to get a full download. Like it took them hours to do a download when this other team was pushing code changes five times a week, right? And so somebody else, so they had to change their practices. And in doing so on the time they were releases, how they were bundling, how they were optimizing. And in doing so, they were able to make it so that other folks who were working at different internet speeds and connectivities and timelines were actually able to contribute even more because we weren't making assumptions about the kinds of hardware and connectivity that they had. 
So I do want to say, I think you've said it multiple times, the centralized platforms do not optimize for different kinds of computing and connectivity resources. So maybe we should be considering what kinds of co-localities we're choosing when we're trying to choose how and where to release any kind of software and any kind of documentation. And you mentioned documentation so many times. I really appreciate that you did that. I think there's a lot of work that we have to do to be able to understand that we're making the wrong assumptions. Yeah, it's funny. I used to hate the word documentation. I think when I was starting into like the whole tech thing. And then as I was like diving more into it and trying to understand platforms that I was new to, for example, or projects, and then there was nothing about them. I thought this is actually, this pushes people out of being involved in projects fully because they have no clue how this thing works. And no one has the time to go around and explaining it doesn't make sense to not have documentation. And that is something I find a lot from my very small experience in working as like with software projects here in the UK is that they don't like talking about documentation, but that's just how like, again, it's not mega projects that are going to be, you know, put out there in the world, but it's just the little things like no one likes to think about documenting because he thinks it's boring or it doesn't make sense. But that's also like, I think how is also another way of gatekeeping knowledge and information. And people don't like to think about how unintentionally we keep people out of these skills and knowledge too, right? Yeah. Yeah, which is funny because technical writers that I've met are some of the most radical people that I have actually met in tech. <laughs> so yeah. yep. I think that there's a real opportunity for kind of breaking some of this conformity out just by rewriting style guides of like, this is who you're designing for now. This is how you need to think about IA for technical pages, how you can think about internationalization and accessibility. There's a lot of things in there that like I would love to see that come out and change for. And I think you're right that there's a lot of fear people have where if they document so much, will they lose their center of power? Whether that's being the sole maintainer of a very popular package, which then they get burned out. So there's this real paradox that exists around knowledge sharing, which I would love to correct. In my head, I'm going down this silly rabbit hole, which I often do, which is, oh, okay. So the way to solve the world's problems is to be better in your personal sphere of influence, which means like be a good neighbor, which means act with grace whenever you can, which means that really just try and reduce power. But if you're going to reduce your own power, that means you have to accept death. So really Buddhism, everyone just be Buddhist more. (laughs) (laughs) Which is one way of looking at it. But anyway, that's how I'm interpreting this conversation is like, cool. Give up power, think about the lesser privileged, try as hard as you can. And if you need support with that, ask your community, build community networks. And you know, maybe that's a better way to think about changing the world instead of, well, I need to change my readme and have it be available in Zapotec too. It's like, well, that's only going to get you so far, <laughs> but it'd be good. Cool. But there are maybe other steps first. You know, this is super fun. This is a great conversation. Thank you so much for coming on and delving deeper into these topics. I wish we could talk forever, but we don't need to because that would just be a long time to talk. So where can people follow you on the web? Where can they learn more about your work, your art, et cetera? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I mean, I don't use social media that much because sometimes I go down rabbit holes and I can be an anxious person and that doesn't help me with my anxiety. So, but I did have a Twitter handle, Yadira slash Anset, my surname, Instagram as well. 
I occasionally post stuff about like going home, doing stuff with family there and also like the projects that I'm doing. But I'll probably share with you the most important one, which is, you know, the project I do with other Latin American colleagues on technological kind of like resistance and also like replicating tools. That's probably my favorite part of like social media, sharing the things that we do there and getting people on board if they want to. I will pass the um, link for that Instagram here, which is the Cortizadora hack. So good luck pronouncing that. <laughs> that is awesome. Okay, cool. Sweet. Yeah, I'm not going to try, but cool. Yeah, it's actually a funny word because in English, it translates to chopper. So like chopping, like chopping cool. things. I don't know, something like that. It's funny. There's Cortizadora hack. Cool. Yeah. Uh- Excellent. That'll be in the show notes. Thank you so much, Idina. That is super cool. And also, of course, why wouldn't you share stuff about going home and being human? We're all whole people and people in tech should probably learn to accept that more. That's why I only take photos of birds on Instagram. Moving on. Spotlight. That's right. It's time for destacar el foco, el luz concentrada, el faro auxiliar, or illuminar, whatever you want to call it. Those are probably all really bad Google translations for Spotlight. Time to share some love with people or projects or things which have helped us out in the past. Amanda, what is your spotlight today? So I always like to recommend reading because reading is my jam. So for folks who have not yet seen it, if it hasn't yet been mentioned on the podcast, there's an excellent essay called Apache Appropriation by the group Natives in Tech. And it describes the dissonance between the Apache Software Foundation's stated mission and values and their current name and logo. So if you have not had a chance to yet read this, I recommend it. And the link will be in the show. Super excited about that. Thank you so much. Leslie, what's your spotlight today? My spotlight today is on the Outreachy Program, which is an organization that provides internships to underrepresented groups to help them get started participating in free and open source software projects. You can find that at outreachy.org. And the next application deadline for folks who'd like to participate in the program is coming up on February 6th. Lots of resources available to help you understand the application process. Really grateful for the work they've done in our community. Sweet. I have two today. One of them is the Middlebury Abenaki course. If you want an immersion course in Abenaki, which is the language spoken here in the area now known as Vermont, also known as Ndakina, the Dawnland, do check out Middlebury's course. I have a friend who has taken this course and they were able to speak in Abenaki for two weeks, which is super exciting. And I wish I could speak with them as well. And I'll have to do that in the future. I also want to give a shout out to the Nulhegan Band, which has done a ton of work on Western Abenaki, which you can find online. So if you're in the general New England area, the Algonquin languages here are all actually pretty similar. You should check them out and see if you can learn some Abenaki. They have Zoom meetings like every week all the time. So I just think that's really, really cool. Yadira, what is your spotlight today? My spotlight today, I'm going to say Yasna Yagilar talk on YouTube about indigenous futures and just generally about other cool stuff that has to do with language, etymology, where things come from and how we go to where we are today. Awesome. Muchas gracias for that. That is super cool. Those links will all be in the show notes, everyone. So do check them out. While you're on the show notes, where can you find those podcasts? It's the same OSS.org. So do look there for anything cool. If you feel like there are other guests we should have on this podcast, do let us know. Or if you have any thoughts about this podcast and you want to talk about it, we are available. Podcast at the same OSS.org. We'll get to all of us by email, all of the hosts. We'll also have a link for, to a discourse thread for this podcast on our discourse at discourse.sustainoss.org. You may be noticing a theme in our naming schema. If you like this podcast, do like it on Apple and Google and all the other things. That'll be super cool. Tell your friends about it. We always like having more voices. And if you're in the area in London on the 7th and 8th, I believe, but you should probably check that. 
go to State of Open Con, which is really cool. We're going to have a sustained room. Amanda, are you pointing yourself? Are you going to be there? Yes, that is the coldest news I've had all day. It's really funny because you live. Not had a chance to connect with people, but yes, I will get to be there. We could just meet for pastries whenever. But anyway, moving on. Very exciting. Can't wait to be there. We're also going to have a event later on in the year. So if you're interested in helping to organize, please do get in touch with me. And thank you so much, Yadira. This was excellent. Take care. Bien viaje. That's Portuguese. Damn it. No, that's just spot on Spanish. Oh, cool. All right. Thank you. 